Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we are excited to be connecting you to people and stories in and about Israel to give you a window to look through about aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or please be in touch with us at genesis123.co. Also, please feel free to share this with people who you know who will find it of interest. David Nakarotman and I have had the privilege of knowing and working together for over 20 years. Albeit a few years apart, we started professionally working at the Israeli consulate, him in New York in 2000 and me in Atlanta in the 1980s. More than getting our respective professional start in the Israeli foreign ministry, it's where we each began our respective work, a calling in complementary directions, working and building bridges with Christians. Over the years, David has passionately served the calling of Jewish-Christian relations, now for over two decades. His op-ed articles on topics relating to Jewish-Christian relations have appeared in the Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, and Charisma Magazine, just to name a few. And he has appeared on God TV and CBN, as well as other media. He's attended and spoken at countless churches, Bible study groups, Christian colleges, international ministry events and conventions as well. For years, his Bible studies have investigated the scriptures from a Hebraic perspective, which have enriched and even astonished his Christian participants with insights they unknowingly overlooked in the Hebrew text. As a youth, David attended an Orthodox Jewish yeshiva school in New York and Israel. Later, he earned his Bachelor of Arts in Forensic Psychology from John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a Master's of Social Work from the University of Pennsylvania. In 2018, he received his Master's of Arts in Biblical Literature with a concentration in, in Judaic Christian Studies from the College of Theology and Ministry at Oral Roberts University, ORU. His degree at ORU established him as one of the very few Orthodox Jews to graduate from a Christian university's theology program ever. In June 2021, he received special recognition from Israel's foreign ministry of, uh, and, the, and the Department of World Religions for his two decades of service as a goodwill ambassador for Jewish-Christian relations. In March of 2022, David will be publishing a book on the Sabbath for Christians entitled Your Sabbath Invitations. You can visit now and pre-order these copies of, of Your Sabbath Invitation at YourSabbathInvitation.com, and we will provide that in the notes for this program. David lives in Israel with his wife and their three sons. David, this is an incredible opportunity, and you're really the best person I could have thought of to have the conversation about the top 10 news items. And that's a hard thing, by the way. It's been a, it's been a, a hyper-prophetic year, but we've narrowed it down to uh, some really fascinating items. And I want to mention, and I'll, hopefully I'll remember to mention again in the course, course of the conversation, when people want to have information, 
sources on all of these. So please be in touch with inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We have a PDF with all of the sources plus others that we won't even have a chance to talk. So please reach out. But David, before we get into the actual items that we're going to be discussing for the prophetic uh, issues of 2021, can, can you give an overview as to why these individually and together are prophetic and, and maybe just a wide, even a widening lens of how that fits into the prophetic um, situation in which we find ourselves here? So first of all, uh, thank you very much. Next time, I'll just give you my bio, a simple servant of God. And that will shorten my, the introduction of what we need to do for God today in your program. Um, I just want to mention that when we're talking about Jews returning back to Israel and the technological and medical advancements that Israel has done specifically this year, as well as the archaeological finds, I think we need to have a broader perspective of how we see prophecy taking place now. There is no question that 1948 was a game changer in God's divine narrative and where we see ourselves in redemptive history. But if we only give that snapshot and we stay with that frame, then we lose the perspective of how fast redemptive history has actually fast forwarded to experiencing what we're seeing right now. So although these advances are happening, we just came off from a major holiday called Hanukkah. Now, again, we can go to the snapshot of 2,200 years ago and celebrate that. But Hanukkah is relevant today as it was back when the Jews were under a tyrannical government of the Seleucid Empire. Right now, anti-Semitism is on the rise, but there are two types of anti-Semitism. There's the anti-Semitism of Hanukkah, and there's the anti-Semitism of Purim, which is the Book of Esther holiday that we celebrate 30 days prior to Passover. So I know you're going to explain the difference. And the difference is very simply (laughs) that the anti-Semitism of Hanukkah is a spiritual anti-Semitism. It's one that does not wish for us to express our faith and commitment to the one God and king of the world. The anti-Semitism of Purim, which is sort just outlined in the book of Esther, is the actual existence of the Jewish people, the physical existence of the Jewish people. So we could take those two episodes, separate them, and they were in the past and we're fine right now. But the fact remains that although we are in redemptive history, both anti-Semitisms still exist because people who are anti-Semitic are anti-God. It's just using the Jewish people as an excuse to go against God. So I don't want you as Jews physically existing. That means for us today, living in a sovereign state under Jewish authority. All right. We don't mind if you're Jews living under us, but for us to be really full, the fullness of what it means to be a Jew is living in Israel, acting as a nation among nations, but under the constitution of the Torah, not of fleeting values. That existence is being denied. So every single time someone says they're, you know, Jews weren't around, that's a myth, or they're changing the narrative on the ground that that really wasn't Jews back then. 
That's our physical existence. Then there's the other thing of faith itself. For us to really openly, without fear, practice our commitment to God. And that's not always the case, even in some Western countries, in certain neighborhoods that don't allow us to fully express that, namely kosher laws. There are states within Western democracy that have outlawed kosher for us. But that's my faith and commitment that I'm supposed to go ahead and eat a certain uh, biblical dietary uh, foods. And if I can't do that, then isn't that law in and of itself going against my faith and practice? So both of these things are happening during redemptive history until Messiah comes. So I just want to put this out there when we're dealing with a messianic era, it doesn't mean it's without the challenges of both a Purim and Hanukkah understanding of the forces that are going against and don't wish redemptive history to move forward. But we both know, Jonathan, that God's plans will always outshine. And I think that we, we see this in Israel. I think what's very unique in the, our narrative and how we as Jews see redemptive history is that we're part and actively taking part in that history. We're not bystanders looking outside in and watching all these things happening. We believe that redemption must be through our own hands as well. I would say this. I want to make sure Messiah doesn't have that much to do when Messiah comes. I want to make his job easier. And therefore, there is a perspective that says, I realize I can't do everything, but I'm going to begin whatever I can in my lifetime to contribute to redemptive history. So both of us have made the journey back home in our own family history to move to Israel. Okay, we could be Jews living anywhere we want in the world, but we chose to come here because we want to be a chapter heading in redemptive history. Correct. All right. Not only that, our own callings in life is very much in a universal understanding of redemptive history. That we can't be who we are as a nation of Jews without our covenantal partner experience with the non-Jewish world and particularly with the Christian world. Our redemptive history is always bringing and making sure that other nations who are committed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going with us in redemptive history because redemptive history is not a VIP club. It's not for Jews only. Right. So all our text in the prophets is always about universal redemption. And that we are supposed to bring God out of hiding for the world to know who he is. And that can take place even in the medical lab of universities. Uh-huh. It could take place in the advancements of technology. It could take place even in verifying our biblical history. Well, I want to, I just, that's beautiful. I, I, I'm you know, I, I want I want to rewind all of that already. So the great thing about this being a podcast is people can do that rewind and listen and take notes again on what you just said. But as you're saying this, a, a, a number of things come to mind, and one of it is what, what which I always find is sort of the uh, the step stepchild of the verse that we always refer to as the kind of foundation of blessing Israel, Genesis twelve three. 
everyone knows I will bless those who bless you and, and want to be blessed. And everyone knows I will curse those who curse you. But ble- uh, the, the nations or the families of the world will be blessed through you. And that's what we're talking about. And that's all of us. That's all of us together. And and everything that we're able to do here, here in our lives. I love how you said, make Messiah's job really easy. Because all of I think all of these things that we're going to talk about, in a sense, do that. But we're but we're but we're connecting with our Christian friends who also understand the biblical, prophetic, and historic uh, circumstances in which we find ourselves. So, but before I before we jump into the actual top ten list, and we're going to do it in the opposite of the David Letterman way, where he would start start at number ten. We're going to go from well, at least by at least by Jonathan's calculation, and also you mentioned Hanukkah. There's a debate in um, among the rabbis: do we start lighting the candles from one, two, three, four, five? six, seven, eight, or eight and down. And uh, that's for another conversation. But I'm going to start with with what I think is um, uh, the top. But is there anything else as far as an overview? Uh, why? What's the significance of these individually and together? And anything else that you wanted to say about this prophetic time that we're in? I, I think one of the things I just want to bring out when we're discussing these, these uh, phenomenal findings for uh, 2021 is I think we knew we need a new language when we're addressing a redemptive history. In the case where, as I said, I want to make Messiah's job easier, but Messiah, when Messiah comes, the job for Messiah is to get us from a perspective of that we're not always fixing things. When Messiah comes, the world will be changed. In a, in a place where there is a utopia. And the question is, can we live in, in a utopia? For us Jews, if we don't, as we will use a Yiddish word, fetch, complain here and there. Is life yeah. good? Life is, life is fine. No, life is great. I wake up every morning in this moment of redemptive history. I get up in the morning. I can't wait to just take the day because I am part of people who are committed to bring redemption into the world. Uh, I'm not here to complain. I don't want to complain. I'm so happy we're living in a privileged era. For those, you know, people before me, my, my great-grandfather wasn't able to see this moment. So I think when we're dealing with redemptive history, the language is, is that we should start moving away from we need to fix everything to, to a place where, oh, we're living in the time of redemptive history. And what does that mean in my relationship with God? Not as only an individual, not only as a community, but as nations. Right. So when we're talking about these episodes, it's more than I'm justifying my existence. Look at the anti-Semites out there. I'm going to fix it because I have an archaeological find that proves my existence. No, I'm here. I exist anyway. I'm talking to Jonathan Felstein today. Despite whatever anybody who wanted to do to my people, uh, we're here and yeah. we're back in the place. The point of this archaeological find is to now say, ah, the verification of this biblical narrative means that this biblical narrative now must be from the perspective of how do I deal with redemption? Great. And, and, and address redemption and redemption language as opposed to I'm fighting a battle. God well, will take care of the battle. You you you've select you you've successfully just given us another topic for another episode, and I and I will look forward to jumping into that. 
uh, with you uh, early in 2022. But right now, let's focus on just some. It's funny because there are so many. It was really hard to whittle down this list, and I'm grateful for you for providing that initial list. And and I just want to remind everyone, if you like the sources, uh, in addition, please just email me at uh, inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. So the first, the first item that I wanted to bring up is somewhat significant because of the, uh, of, of what it's about, but it's also significant. Uh, it was reported in many, in many, uh, outlets, but the one that I'm looking at is Voice of America. And the fact that the Voice of America, which is typically not going to be, uh, a, a, a media outlet that's going to be, um, pro-Israel, much less affirming things, uh, forget prophecy, like you just said, uh, the, uh, of our legitimacy here, um, it, it, it is somewhat significant of itself. So back in July, Voice of America reported that there was a new archaeological find. I always love the, 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 the paradox of new archaeological find because they're, they're just sitting there waiting for us and they're not new at all. We just finally got to them. A, a, a VIP room adjacent to the temple in the, in, in, I was going to say the old city of Jerusalem today, but then what was Jerusalem? And what's amazing to me is that it underscores, obviously, the biblical uh, facts, the narrative, um, uh, something, well, we were mentioning David Letterman before, this being the top 10 list. I, I kind of think when you read about this, that it's sort of like the green room for being on, right? You're about to go into the temple, and this is for the VIPs of 2000 years ago. What, what's, you know, let's start off with that. This is, I mean, at the, the reason I picked it as number one is it's literally at the center of our existence as a Jewish people. Right. And remember, again, the background to that is that lately, uh, Jews wanting to visit the Temple Mount has been very, very controversial. Great. Again, I could come from the point of that Look, we're, I'm, I brought that out to battle against our legitimacy on the Temple Mount. And I want to make it very clear to the viewers, that's not the reason why I picked it for your consideration on the program. I picked it because in redemptive history, the idea that dignitaries, our dignitaries in Israel will come, but the whole point is there will be dignitaries from all over the world Beautiful. that will come to the Temple Mount to celebrate God. That's the point that I see that. If that was found now, that God allowed it in his time to be discovered now, in a time when the Temple Mount legitimacy for me to go up to the Temple Mount to visit it as a Jew, then I have this finding means that sooner or later, we're going to have the grand VIP room for dignitaries to come from all over the world. And you, what you see is actually in the Abrahamic Accords, which is one of the things we'll discuss, is that we're having dignitaries that we normally didn't have relationships with beforehand with countries coming to Israel. And I didn't put this on because it just was done, but you had a Hanukkah celebration yes. in Dubai right. of, of, of one of the major sheikhs there. Lighting, he was lighting the Hanukkah menorah. I mean, that's, that's just fascinating. Right. So I look at that as if Israel had a VIP room that we have that over there, Imagine what it would be when, when Messiah comes of the major green room that we'll have for the dignitaries coming from all over the world. 
but but I suspect that they'll still stay at the Waldorf or the King David or the or or the Mamilla Hotel. They're right, all but, welcome. But their green room is the purpose is that they'll come on the Temple Mount to celebrate and worship Correct. God. That's the, that's Correct. the point. You want to stay at the hotel wherever you want. Go ahead. But the but the the, the concept is that there was a VIP room. There were dignitaries there, although those were dignitaries within the Jewish people. But if you remember in Second Temple period, non-Jews were coming at that time to worship with us. But as more and more non-Jews will be part of this prophetic redemptive moment, you're going to see even people from we didn't think that would be part of this be part of this. That's what I see from that episode. Great. That's awesome. So let's move on. Also sticking with Second Temple period. Uh, Let me let me. I'm trying to just kind of scroll between the articles. I want to find which which date it was, but this is actually one of the most recent uh, uh, items that came up just last month in the at the end of November. An 11 year old girl digging in um, the archaeological ruins, which I, which I want to come to. It's the it's the dirt that the that the Muslim waqf, uh, the 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 Islamic leaders who who control the Temple Mount. Un, unearth, literally unearthed from beneath the, the, what's the current surface and dumped it. They put them in dump trucks and dumped it, which was a, a grave archaeological crime. Um, Maybe may a, a criminal offense as well. And we have this place in Jerusalem where we can go. It's called the, I forget what it's called, um, Temple Mount Sifting Project, right? Where you can go and dig through thousands of years of dirt. And an 11-year-old girl happened to pick the bucket with a 2,000-year-old silver coin. And how do we know that it's 2,000 year old, years old? It says on it, the Hebrew letters Shin and Bet, which is not for today's Israel Secret Service, but Shin for Shana, the Hebrew word Shana, and Bet for the Hebrew number two, the second year of the great revolt against the Romans. And, and if you follow the news on this, it's believed that possibly the high priest himself may have minted this coin, or certainly it was minted on his behalf. That's pretty powerful. Right. But I think what's more powerful in the story, and again, this is all part of redemptive history. Again, here's a small 11-year-old girl who could have just put that coin in her pocket, kept it. Uh, Okay. But there's something, there's a trust that we have in this country that if you do find something that is, that should be part of the Israel Antiquities Authority, which is the, the governing body that takes care of all these archaeological finds, that 11-year-old has enough biblical education to say this goes to the, the organization that represents the state of Israel and the Jewish people. That concept of what we call in Hebrew, hashavat aveda, returning a lost object, is more than just simply, I lost my wallet, which has the identification my driver's license and I and I and I look at it and I return it to the person. Here we know it's an ownerless coin. Right. Right? It's in the dirt. The eleven year old could have pocketed, yet she has enough biblical values to return it back. And 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 so for me the story is is that imagine that in a world where stealing seems to be okay. I, you know this in the United States, that yeah. there are places where you can go ahead, steal about $900 from a CVS and only get a misdemeanor. Right. And right. it just, okay, that, that's okay. We won't, we won't prosecute the person. 
their means like that. And here's a here's a girl who could have really pocketed, maybe, you know, take on to the black market. The whole family could have done something with the coin, made a few bucks of, over it. And what does a biblical value mean to teach somebody from a very young, young age? So that means this 11-year-old is representing the generation coming up that we can secure the trust based upon the love of a people and the love of a nation to return its coin. That to me is also part of redemptive history. That's that's be- that's beautiful. But also in when when you were speaking earlier about how you and I have chosen to live here, in addition to cho- choosing to live here, we've chosen to raising our children here. And I'm a little bit ahead of you. I got a couple of grandchildren as well. But in making that choice, we raise our children not just with the Jewish biblical values, but the national values. Here's an 11 year old girl who obviously never probably never would have occurred to her that, wow, that would make a really beautiful necklace if we put it in a gold, gold right? That would be really cool, actually, um, or, or selling it on a black market. But here she is. She's part of our history. And she's found a piece. I mean, obviously, she didn't know. She, she's an Israeli girl. She could have read the scripture as well. But she wouldn't necessarily have known right then that this was not just a generic 2,000-year-old coin, but minted in the temple during the second year of the revolt. And by the way, it always it strikes me as so fascinating is that how do, you know, when we, when we, when we now call the war that we, that we undertook in June of 1967, the Six-Day War, we know now that it was the Six-Day War. Nobody on day two of the Six-Day War called it day two of the Six-Day War, right? Nobody they just called it war. It was war. And and so so how fascinating that you have someone in the temple itself who's minting a coin in the second year, but we don't know how long is that even going to continue. Right. They still had the faith that something was hopefully going to be able to turn around. So, yeah, it proves hope. But here you have an 11-year-old that is the culmination of that hope. She's she's the fulfillment of it. She's the fulfillment of that hope. Absolutely. On so many levels. Beautiful. Great. Let's move on from this cute 11-year-old girl with her silver coin and jump back about a thousand years. Uh, There was a rare uh, biblical inscription from the period of the judges. I'm going to look and see what's the, um, it's hard for me to keep up with the excitement of this conversation and the the sources themselves. So in July, uh, also a number of sources, I have one that will be glad to share anyone who wants to to reach out. An uh, archaeologist finds um, a 31-year-old, a 3,100-year-old alphabetic inscription on a piece of pottery. So because it's pottery, we know that we can carbon date it to 3,100 years. It's from the period of judges. It has a particular name of a, a, a of a reference. I'm reading the English. I, I don't know if I'm even pronouncing the English right. Jerubal. Yep. Okay. And, and it's on a ceramic uh, jug. There's and the article talks about what that jug might have been used used for, and it's literally a piece of the puzzle where the archaeological evidence is proving this history. Why is that so significant? Is one of the top ten for this year, David? So I go back to biblical values and how biblical values are are just ingrained in in the nation of Israel. Uh, so if you know anything about the Book of Judges. Many people were doing what they wanted to do in their own eyes. They felt that living under the constitution of the Torah wasn't the thing to do. And many, many judges were, who were leading the Jewish people didn't have it re- really easy. Now, just fast forward and where we are as the nation of Israel, 
this is truly amazing because you know, Jonathan, that although we lost our governing institutions, although we lost our geographic location almost 2,000 years ago, we reconstituted ourselves under the word of God. There is no other nation in the world that has lost their geographic location and their governing institutions to come back 2,000 years later except right. for us. Right. So what I see from there is that the word of God, if we are faithful and loyal to it, sustains our people. So during that particular judge, judge period, although there were people doing what they thought was right in their own eyes, biblical values outlasted. The reconstituted Jewish people came back onto the word of God, and we are back here based upon the word of God. So I think that, again, I look at as this is redemptive history. It takes a long process for people to remain faithful to God, because there are so many attractions taking us away from that commitment. And the, and the judge, the book of Judges period proves that point. So not everything is instantaneous coffee when it comes to redemption. And our people had to go through what we needed to go through to be who we are today. Not as to boast, but as an, being an example that we are elected based upon responsibility. And that responsibility is under a constitution. And that constitution for us is God's word. Excellent. It's funny you just said uh, something about coffee because I actually entered this conversation really tired. I had a bad night's sleep last night. And I literally, as you're speaking, I'm, be I'm feeling, wow, I'm all pumped up. This is like, this is like a big shot of caffeine. I, there's a tremendous high having these conversations. See, I'm better than aroma coffee. There you go. Okay. <laughs> aroma being one of the national franchises of coffees here. So. We look forward to everyone listening, coming and having an aroma coffee and a snack with us. Wait now here, because the next item is an edible item. And this, I love this. As a matter of fact, I, I wasn't not, again, it was a total coincidence. I didn't set this up just before. I wanted a little bit of sugar before uh, we, we started having this conversation. I grabbed myself some dates. Now I want to stay in that in that 2000 year range. Uh, I, I don't remember exactly how long, but a couple of years ago, people started finding in some of the archeological ruins around the country, date pits, little pit. You know, everyone has eaten a whole date knows how big they're about maybe half an inch to an inch long, um, real, you know, pretty small. They could slip inside of a straw and people found date pits, which, which goes back even to that whole conversation about what that 11 year old girl found. Who knows what else was in that little bucket of dirt that she was digging around, but even a pit from a 2000 year old date is significant. Again, it can be carbon dated. And because you mentioned before, the scientists here are so, edgy and outrageous, someone decided to think, can we plant some of these? Can we cultivate some? And now we have fruit trees. From, from the second temple period. From the dates of the second temple period, and people are harvesting the fruit. It's, it, 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 this was a, a story that was published in, uh, in August this year. Yeah, to me, that's very significant because one of the things we've always, we talk about among ourselves is that when the, the, the people come back to the land, the land welcomes us. How? Through its vegetation, through its shrubbery, its flowers, its trees. 
everyone knows if they ever seen old photographs of Israel 73 years ago, it's nothing like what it is today. What I see in that pit is we just went ahead through the scientific technology that we were able to uh, hone here in Israel to take a pit and say, you know what? We're going to do something amazing. We're going to actually have fruit from the time of the second temple. So back to the future just took place here for me. So Michael J. Fox has nothing over a date pit. <laughs> Excellent. By the way, another, another thing before we hop on to something that's somewhat related, uh, people need to know that when we read throughout the Bible, the references to the land, that this being the land of milk and honey, the honey is not yellow bee honey that you buy in a squeezy jar in an American or, or, or Western grocery store, but it's in fact the honey made from dates. Here we call it Ceylon. And I cook with it. I, 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 we bake with it. Uh, it. It gives me a taste of the past, but now you can go down to a tree in, uh, in the Negev Desert and literally pick a piece of fruit that, who, whose genetic ancestors uh, skipped over 2,000 years and, and literally replanted themselves here. It's, it, it's fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble with the next source, maybe, let's see. But, but relating to fruit, now I want to hop into the fruit of the Abraham Accords, the diplomacy. This season, it's, it, it, it's, it preceded 2021. It started in two, officially publicly in 2020. But the fruit of all of these things that have come up, and there, there are actually a couple of articles about this, um, talking about the outcome of the peace with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco specifically, that, that people are now teaching and, and studying Hebrew in Dubai, that there are a whole source of medical partnerships that are taking place between Israel. Um, Israel's, I, think, I believe it's our largest hospital, but certainly the largest state hospital, Sheba Hospital outside of Tel Aviv, Hadassah Hospital, uh, focusing on burn treatment and more, and, and now a defense agreement. Imagine this a defense agreement with Morocco, with an Arab country that we were never formally at war with, but we're not formally at peace with either. We're, we're, uh, we're um, helping provide water. Israel, one of the most arid countries in the world, we're, we're, we're exporting water to, to, our, Jordan. to Jordan, Jordan, to our neighboring countries in partnership with the UAE and even preserving wildlife and cultivating meat. All of these kind of things, and it's all, it's just a lot. I don't know how much, how many which took place in twenty twenty one because the defense minister just signed the the agreement Correct. in Morocco just uh, it was two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. Very recent, very recent, and it's and it's revolutionary. I I just heard somebody on, on the news, the generic news, not the Israeli news, speaking about. It. I don't remember. It's extraordinary. So these are all, if you will, and, and many more, the fruit of the season of diplomacy. How is that prophetic? Why are we? Why is that deserve ranking as number five on our list? Because redemption takes place through the natural processes and agents who we think shouldn't be, but they really are the ones that carry out redemption. And that's very much a part of a religious understanding of history. If you really look at the prophets, uh, redemption is never wrapped up in a bow on a nice box and given to us. Redemption happens through the natural phenomena that's supposed to take place. It's something very much within our outlook as Jews in redemptive history 
who see that Israel is part of the Messianic era. What was amazing about what happened with the Abrahamic Accords, and specifically under COVID, that all these things are happening. Good point. Because the world is shutting down, but yet didn't shut down for this specific moment for Israel. Because if anyone knows, most people can't get into Israel right now. But the places we could go to was actually expanding the nations normally not having diplomatic relations with us. So I look at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a divine agent of God. doesn't mean that everyone has to be religious in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but the governing agency is representing the Jewish people, a land that's part of biblical, it's part of the whole redemptive history. It's, redemption starting here, and everyone knows that if they read, they read the prophets. So the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is part of that process of redemptive history, trying to go ahead and create the doors of possibility to expand our diplomatic relations. So for me to see that under COVID specifically, and where a lot of people couldn't come to us, those countries were open in order to make these things happen. If that's not miraculous, I don't know what is. Well, it sure is. Um, now, now let's hop over to another international, um, another incredible international thing, which I have to be honest, I, when, when you shared this with me, I hadn't even been aware of the fact that Haiti suffered another earthquake um, this year. I, I, I remember everyone, anyone who has a little bit of historic knowledge remembers the massive uh, earthquake that, that Haiti suffered in 2010, and Israel was credited all over the world. I, I, I seem to remember CNN referring to Israel as the Cadillac of, of uh, first response and medical response. But this year there was another earthquake and Israel was there providing psychological counseling. Very impressive to me. I wouldn't have thought of it, but it makes sense. Um, uh, sanitation, hygiene, dealing with water. Water is huge because these are things a lot of times people will go in after a natural disaster and put a Band-Aid on something, but not really do anything that's long-term and sustainable. And when you're dealing with water, you're dealing with life. And the fact that we knew to go in there and create clean water for people to be able to live. Now, of course, it's not just happening in Haiti. Israel jumps in like this all over the world uh, all the time. It's happened. It happened the year before. It'll probably happen next year. But, but what's the significance of Israel behaving like this in general in a country far away where we don't even have an embassy? We have diplomatic relations. We don't even have an embassy in, in, in Haiti. What's the significance of that, David? So, for, again, so I want to make this very clear. Uh, I, I don't view going out to Haiti as some type of Peace Corps initiative. I view going out to Haiti as the, what defines us as a nation of Israel. And that when we're going to repair the world, we're repairing the world under the sovereignty and the kingdom of God. That this is what we call kingdom work. And we were only able to do this based upon that, how we were able to advance as a society in Israel, understanding that we didn't have, uh, we had limited water sources. We had to figure out uh, innovative ways to go ahead and, and create our water source. So where the, the, the Sea of Galilee was our primary water source at one point in time, now we under the wisdom of God, created des, uh, desalination plants in Israel. We understand how to, uh, we also created a water drip 
technology as well. All these water advancements came at a time when when Israel was trying to figure out how to be a nation and how to deal with its limited resources. And then through the technology, we just didn't say, well, it's ours and we're not going to share it with the world. Part of what it means to be a godly nation is to go out under the concept of the kingdom of God and help. So what I see Israel doing this, in particular on, in, the, in the COVID situation we're in, and willing to do that, and Haiti willing to accept that. Yes, that's important. That's also very important. A nation willing to accept someone coming from a long distance to come in and, and say, okay, we, we're willing to have your, uh, your know-how so we can help people. Not every, there are nations that border us, Jonathan, that we've offered the help when they got hit with a, an oil explosion. That's right. Uh, not that last year. Uh, and we offered help and they didn't want our help. That's right. You have to have a nation be also willing to accept the help. And it's not because we know better. It's just that that's who we, we are as a nation. I'm, I'm proud as a Jew that uh, the state of Israel went out to help out and that Haiti was willing to accept the help. Excellent. Great, great points. So now, uh, actually, this flows really beautifully because now we're talking about a situation of Israel helping the nations, but by bringing people here. Uh, there, there's, it, it, this is not new, but there's something really new in, the, in, in the, the item that came up last month in November with an organization and a major hospital that brings children from all over the world, including our neighboring uh, countries and, and, and what have you. Who, who don't recognize us, we don't, who we don't have peace with, to do critical heart surgery on, on infants all the way up until, until adolescence. Um, and what, where it came out in the news, I don't know how many dozens of kids came to Israel, but, but in over the years, I, I, I did research this, over the years, over 6,000 children have come for free heart surgery here in Israel, saving a life. And you and I know the Talmudic sage, uh, a phrase, um, who, he who saves a life saves a world. We're all, I was thinking about it from a perspective of parents, you know, it's not just saving a life. It, we would do anything for our children. And, and, and if you're a parent in a developing country and your kid has a heart problem and you know, your kid's not going to get healthy or fixed where you live. This is, this is this, the, the, the literal definition in every way of saving life. And it came up in the news because with the DRC, the Democratic. Yes. Republic and so, Congo. right. With the president of Congo here, who and why is that significant? Uh, we, we have very good relations, but the president of Congo, and I know this from my um, uh, pastor friends in Africa, has been at the forefront of of making sure and advocating that Israel should be accepted again to the African Union. And here he is in Israel and he's having a whole state visit. And I, And I don't know if it was if it was scripted or if it was generally uh, g- genuinely um, uh, su- uh, surprised that he didn't know about. But while he was here, it was announced Israel's going to take 12 more kids from Congo and bring them here to fix their hearts. So again, this is where God makes the path for us to create the possibility of having a better relationship with Africa. And this is actually personal. I didn't tell you this, Jonathan. The reason why I shared that was more of a personal journey because when I started off in the Israeli consulate, uh, one of one of my primary bosses was uh, now he's ambassador Yahel Vilan, and Yahel Vilan was one of the people who was very supportive of my work in 
in um, extending a hand of friendship to the to Christians in the United States. Um, and we did it out of faith, not just it wasn't based upon a political moment or, or a Kodak moment. It was really based upon we want to do this out of relationship. Now, Yehel Vilan went to serve different places, but including Africa later on in his diplomatic career. And when when uh, the former prime minister, Benjamin Natio, went to Africa to start the initiative, you should just know, although the prime minister takes the credit for it, <laughs> was my boss, Ambassador Yahel Vilan, to make the to make the path to happen. So what started back about, I think, about five years ago, here we are today, that those seeds that were planted expanded where Israel now, I think it's part of the African Union right now, if I remember correctly. They announced uh, the, the, the vote was they're still debating it. it was, but at least yeah. the, 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 I should say the consideration yeah. was actually announced this year. And here we have the president who was across the street from me in Netanya, oh. at Netanya College. Okay. So this was very much a personal story. And I saw this as also part of what I've been saying all along. God uses agents, even though they don't know they're coming into this redemptive narrative. They are just thinking they're serving their position. Yet look what happens when there is a willingness of both countries to do something. And if there's a way to help a kid and bring them into Israel and get the heart uh, surgery they need, that that's just that's the beautiful beautiful part of the journey yeah uh it, it is indeed. But yeah that, that was personal i just i i was going to share that's the reason why i'm sharing to you right now because i'm very proud of my boss because he was the one really behind me allowing me to to serve in the calling of jewish christian relations in in 2000 well and he and he continues to go on and 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 do great things and that's right. uh and, and but but that's us that that's very normal which is why a lot of the pastors in this uh, Africa praying for Israel group that I uh, work with always comment to me that the be- one of the beautiful things about relations between Israel and the African continent is that we're not in it like the Chinese looking for for planting a, a stake in the ground and or or literally building tunnels and roads and what have you. Uh, this is really there's not. This is not a monetary thing. Sure, we have friends, and maybe friends will will vote in the United Nations with friends. That's a normal thing. But there, there's really not an agenda here other than humanitarian. And by the way, it goes back to the 1950s when when Israel was still in in, in its own infancy as a state, and many of the African countries with whom we've had with had the relations were also just recently um, independent of their own colonial uh, colonial uh, empires. So it's a great story, and it comes back, and, and really, pun, pun intended, touches the heart. Right, but this is really, I, I, I want to make this clear. We're both in serving the calling of Jewish-Christian relations, so this is a really a tribute, because people don't know sometimes who are the players behind making something like this yeah. happen. Good. And it was Ambassador Yahel Vilan that Good. planted those seeds uh, five, six years ago. Great. Uh, thank you for, for, for sharing that. Um, now... We're going to stay domestic for a little bit. Um, you mentioned in, in one of the one of our uh, conversation earlier about how significant. Oh, in terms of uh, the the diplomatic relations and things that have come out of those with the Arab countries, especially in the time of COVID during this pandemic. So we had a number of uh, a number of stresses and a number of tremendous miraculous instant instances that took place. 
One of them being a Muslim nurse, an Arab Muslim nurse, Israeli citizen, who was with a patient who was dying and whose family couldn't get to the hospital in time. So, so I'm just going to say this and I want to let you expand upon it. But he said the Shema, the Shema prayer with the dying patient, because he's an Arab Israeli, he knows Hebrew, and he also believes that there's one God. Why? I mean, that I, I just want to like weep myself saying it, but, but David, would you just kind of build up on that? Yeah. Um, so you had a religious rabbi dying from COVID, and here's this Muslim uh, Arab nurse, male, who realizes that the family can't come and make it in time to be uh, with their with their loved one. And he decides to say the Shema because this is what the person, he needed help to say the Shema because he's, 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 he can't catch his breath. And he's saying in Hebrew to help the Jewish patient. That to me uh, was sort of a game changer because I've never heard that story. I actually shared the story to people who are in the medical field in the United States. And they use that example of what it means to be a multicultural medical practitioner and what does it mean to service a patient in their religious needs at the end of their life. Beautiful. So here, here, again, someone who's not part of our faith, but part of our citizens, because 20% of our citizens are not Jewish. Right. 19% of them are, are Muslim Arabs. Less than 1% are Christian or 1% is Christian. Uh, and yet the values of the state and someone going ahead and understanding the religious needs of somebody was willing to be met. And I thought that story represents what it means to be an Israeli citizen and the values of what that means. It's someone coming to their moment of need and doing a religious act with them. So to me, that was, it was a great story. Uh, I had the opportunity actually to give uh, Maher Ibrahim his uh, an award called the Shema Award, and we wrote the Shema in Hebrew and in Arabic. Lovely, but David, for, yeah. for, especially for our uh, Christians who are listening, who know the Shema, know the verse, uh, "Hero Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one." But what's the significance of it for us specifically when someone's dying, and why is that especially significant? So I always say that uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four is the Oreo cookie kingdom verse. So when you eat Oreo cookies now, you will always think about the Shema. Okay. This is a Pavlov experiment right now. Uh, Wait, I'll be right back. As Jews, as Jews, before we say the Shema, that actual uh, scriptural line, we say, El Melech Neaman, God is a faithful king. That's the acronym for Amen. So again, God is a faithful king. And after we say that scripture of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, we say, blessed be his name and his glorious kingdom forever and ever. So I say the top cookie is the amen. The cream is the Shema. And the bottom cookie is blessed be his name and his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Because that is a kingdom verse, meaning that is the great commission. Yeah, go ahead. It's the great commission because we are supposed to be the witness of the world to bring the kingdom of God down to heaven. And we do that by the understanding of the last, last letter of the first word of Shema, which is an ayin. And the last word 
blessed letter of the word one, which is a chav, which comes out was a dalit, and you put the ayin and the dalit together, it is witness, aid. So the Oreo Kingdom verse of the Bible for the Hebrew Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, but it's about witnessing the kingdom in the world. And so therefore, that is the first verse we teach a child. Yes. That should be articulated on their lips. And our prayer is that will be the last a scripture on our lips as we're passing away from the physicality of this world that I am doing this in service of kingdom. Which is why you'll find many Jews uh, running to take the opportunity to be with their loved ones when they're dying to be sure that they can say it. In this case, it, it makes me so emotional. Think about it. Uh, not just a non-Jew, but we think of, uh, of of Arabs and Jews just not getting along. But you said, here's a perfect example of citizenship and 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 responsibility to one another. And here's an Arab Muslim helping fulfill that man's dying words. Right. And, and again, it's taking place in a year that hasn't been real. You know, the, there were fights between Muslims and Jews this year in various locations in Israel. Yeah. The, the tension is pretty high. Uh, but that doesn't mean we paint the bad picture for all Muslims living in the state of Israel. Here we have someone who is willing to do what we call a sanctifying moment. So so let's let's actually jump into it because it's a very emotional as well to the next one. Which, which picks up exactly on what you just said. There was a, in May when we had our uh, war battle conflict with uh, our neighbors, the Hamas and Gaza, there were also a number of um, uh, riots that took place here in Israel, um, particularly in mixed cities Ar- where Arabs and Jews live together and, and typically live peacefully, uh, neighborly. And there were riots. Uh, Jews were beaten up and killed. Arabs were beaten up synagogues were were torched a torah was destroyed and and one man um I, I actually sadly should know his name but i don't um off the top but someone who 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 reach out will give you that information and all of the sources um a man died he had he was hit in the head with a brick and died and his family donated his organs and one of the recipients of his kidney one of his kidneys was a christian, a christian arab. arab a christian arab uh is israeli woman yeah. Again, in a tragedy, in a time of uh, turmoil, that a person's body can go ahead and help somebody who's not of their faith, but part of their part of this being a citizen of what it means to be in Israel. Right. So here you are, you have somebody who was a Muslim doing a religious act for someone who was dying uh, on the Jewish side. And here you have someone from the Jewish side willing to donate their organ to help someone and that and a Christian Arab who's one of our citizens receives that. Right. And and it could have been could have been very easy with that man getting killed by a brick thrown by another Arab that the family said, no, 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 the kidney goes to a Jewish person, only Jewish person. They didn't say right. that. Didn't yeah. say that. And by the way, it's interesting that you I'm glad, so glad you pointed out that one in five of us are are Arabs here in Israel. And and so I, I did make a note. Um, another kidney cert went to a 67-year-old retired soldier. The liver went to, uh, to a 22-year-old woman and the lungs to a 69-year-old man. So four different people received organs, life-saving organs from that person. And, and at a higher rate, one in, one in four were Arab, higher rate than the percent of Arabs in, the, in, our, in our population. It's extraordinary. Okay. 
Right. And again, this is part of what it means that we always know that in our land, we're going to have people who are not part of our faith expression, but doesn't mean it's part of what it means to be a Jew living in the land. We have a stewardship. Covenant land comes with covenant responsibility. And what that means is that all people who are living here must be equal in, in everything. So that include, and if we can help each other out, despite our religious differences, all the more so. Right. I, I, and again, I consider that just part of what it means to be in a redemptive moment as a steward in the land of Israel. Yeah, one of my kids is working, doing Corona testing, and a Jewish man came in uh, to have his child tested the other day and said, oh, look, it's a Jewish person doing the testing. They won't hurt you like the Arab guy did, the Arab tester did a few weeks ago. And I was so proud. My daughter didn't say this. But her boss, who's a 24-year-old, said to the man, that's not nice. We have Arabs who work for us, and some of them are better than us. Work with us, and some of them are better from than us. Um, we should, you should never say that. I, I love that we're able to affirm that. Um, right. We need a lot of work on it. We desperately need a lot of work on it. I think Ellie Bear from United Hat Seller, I love him. I don't know if you pay attention and follow him. Um, but what he does with his whole team that make up Christians and Arabs and Jews and how they save lives and all those, it's, it's really incredible. Of what, have, what, thank God we have lots and lots of examples of this. They're just not right. known because the, the, Correct. the news. We, we think it's not the norm. It actually is the norm. What's not normal is what the, when the tensions break out. That's not normal. Correct. You go, listen, you go to Mount Milo all the time. Most of the workers there are mostly Arabs, right? This is like the, like the major mall strip of, of Jerusalem, where everyone is buying high-end clothing and shops and stuff like that. And everyone is really walking around and having a good time because that's the normal thing that happens. Well, here, here's my recent example. I, my, I didn't go. My wife had to take my oldest son. He's 23, paratrooper. He got a day off to go do a medical procedure at Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. They go on a Sunday morning, nine o'clock appointment. They're waiting. My son's wearing civilian clothes because he, he didn't feel like being in his uniform before he had to go back to his base, but he's carrying with him his M16. It's over his shoulder and sitting in the waiting room, Jews and Arabs and what have you. And he needed a tissue. So he took out a tissue and some, uh, some uh, Muslim women, some Arab women it, it, it said, you know, excuse me in Hebrew, can, can we have a tissue? And my son got up and gave them tissues wearing his, wearing his gun. This is so the norm here in Israel, but it doesn't, but it's not in the news. And that's why news, it's, right. that's why something like this is important when we're talking about, we, we could have the top hundred prophetic news items. We're only to, right. doing 10 today, but, but it's so the norm. And, and, and it's what a blessing to be able to highlight that. And for the last of them, also as part of our, our, our Arab minority, there's a Druze woman who was appointed to serve as an emissary representing Israel, the Jewish agency in the United States. Now, you and I have worked in, in the foreign ministry. We, we, we worked with and among Druze. Druze are loyal citizens. They, they're a very small minority, about 150,000 in the whole country out of over 9 million people, but very loyal. Uh, they, they, they serve in the army. They're in combat units. And, but this is the first time that I, and they're in, in diplomatic, they're, they're part of us. But here's the first time that you have a Druze woman representing the state of Israel, an Arab woman. What's the significance of that, David? So it goes back to, I think, the, uh, a thing that I've been bringing up, 
the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is our representation to the world. Um, and having, and a lot of times we have just Israeli Jews representing our interests. But part of what we are as a nation is that we're not only a nation of Jews, we're also a nation that's both Jews and non-Jews together. So having someone to represent the state who's a faithful citizen, who, who understands our value and democracy and let, and, and put, put that person and give that opportunity to share what Israel has to offer to the world. Again, we don't, we are never the ones that think uh, in our own limited ability to see redemptive history of who the agents are supposed to be. I look at that as a God moment, that the person who could truly represent us, yes, is a Jews woman. Should it be a Jew? No, because we, it, it happened because God is allowing that person to be an agent. So whoever, again, I always see this in redemptive history. I look at Ruth, I look at Rahab, I look Rahab, I look at different women in history that were part, that came part of the Jewish people, part of the Jewish redemptive narrative. Ruth is probably the biggest example of that. The sort of, sort of I think it is a way to close of what we're, we're talking about in the top 10. But here was a Moabite, and we know from the verse in the Bible that Moabites are not supposed to come in. And and what we see in the story of Ruth is that Ruth sort of lets go of her Moabiteness and transforms into being a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for that reward of shedding all of that, yes, Boaz brings Ruth into the body of Israel. And because what she did was so not typical of a Moabite. Because we know the Moabites didn't give any food to Israel when they were roaming in the desert for 40 years. We know that um, um, Moabites wanted to actually try to get rid of us. Remember, the king of Moab hired Balaam to, you know, to get, sort of get rid of us, right? So they were like the enemy of the, uh, of the Jewish people. Right. Well, all of a sudden, you have this Moabite willing to not only feed Ruth, but go with her in her own journey pick up the crumbs off the floor in the fields. And all she wants to do is continue the name of Naomi. And so Boaz realizes this is not your typical heathen. And there's something very special about her and makes room for her to come into the body of Israel. And that's an outsider coming in. That's an now, outsider. This woman is, is an Israeli citizen. She's not but this an woman is an Israeli citizen. Correct. Who served her country, Correct. who's now in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and now is represented. This is a whole type of the whole type of different narrative right. in our redemption right now right. in history. And as memory serves, she's pretty young. So we have a lot, a lot to look forward to from her and all the people she is going to touch. Uh, I want to remind Even the coalition you, government is a miracle. Whether you agree oh, with it or that's not, that's another. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that's, I know, I know. Okay, there are only ten commandments. Let's not be holding. There's only ten. <laughs> or David Letterman. Um, we passed the budget. This has been extraordinary. Before I, I, I mean, I, I want to thank you. This has been really extraordinary. Before I, I, I just ask you to kind of wrap up with a couple of closing thoughts. I don't want to forget two things. First of all, again, anyone who wants to receive a full list of the sources of these and some of the others that we didn't have time to get to please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. Also, go on to yoursabbathinvitation.com and pre-order uh, your copy of David's book your, uh, called Your Sabbath Invitation. 
Um, David, we spoke before about, I mean, all of this kind of comes back if we're looking at a funnel. We're talking about the history in, 2000, in 2021 of the modern state of Israel. And, 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 and for all those reasons, the state of Israel is a, a miracle not yet quite 40, uh, uh, 74 years old. We have a prayer for the prayer for the state. Maybe can you kind of tie it all up in a, you, you mentioned not, not everything is in a neat tied bow with a, with a present, uh, or, but, but can you maybe do that and, and, and share in terms of the prayer? Because I know a lot of people are, are thrilled by this conversation, but also wanting to know how can they pray for this? Right. So uh, in, in, 19, in 1948, we get a, a prayer from uh, Rabbi Herzog, uh, chief rabbi of Israel, and uh, help from Shai Agnon, one of Israel's poets who received a Nobel Peace Prize. And they, they authored the prayer for the state of Israel. Now, what I'm reading to you right now is the eventual, uh, the whole entire liturgy. I'm not going to read the entire liturgy, but there is a whole page of the prayer for the state of Israel. It begins off with Heavenly Father, Israel's rock and redeemer, bless the state of Israel, the first flowering of our redemption. That's the first line of the prayer for the state of Israel. Now, it talks about the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 30 of bringing Jews from all the four corners of the world, which is what Israel did and still doing. But it ends off, I think this is the paragraph that struck me the most in preparing to be with you today, Jonathan is the last paragraph. And we say this to God, appear in your glorious majesty over all the dwellers on earth and let all who breathe declare the Lord God of Israel is king and his kingship has dominion over all. Amen. Selah. That although Israel, sometimes we think it's just the Jewish VIP experience, it's not. It is, an ex- it is the conduit to really bring forth redemption. And when we were not in the land of Israel, people said either God is dead or God is not with the Jewish people, that this whole covenant that between God and the Jewish people is over. But it was not. It was so not. Here we are. If we're back, it's a prime example that God exists. I say Richard Dawkins has nothing on the state of Israel. (laughs) It is harder to be an atheist than to be a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just look at Israel as a redemptive compass for everybody, for the sole goal that the world will see that God is king and his rule will reign forever and ever. That's the purpose for what we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to be those stewards. And I see that being in Israel, living here, joining with you, joining with our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, they get that message. So I think at the end of the year, when we're discussing all of this, sometimes we do need to be motivated, yeah. continue to God's work. So I look at this podcast as not to just boast of what Israel is doing, but to give what we call in Hebrew chizuk, motivation, to allow people to understand that although it may be a lonely journey for that individual Christian to do what they're doing in their network of influence in their church and their neighborhood don't think it's a lonely journey you are part of a greater narrative and sometimes you need to understand the fruits of what you're doing individually in your own community and the ripple effects of what's happening in the and and what's happening in the world in redemptive history david i knew this was going to be amazing now now with the uh, cup of coffee analogy i probably it's late in the day for me i probably won't sleep 
because I feel that tremendous motivation that you just spoke about. I'm really grateful. You know, one thing I realized I didn't uh, say when I introduced you, um, that you, and, and now people know why, uh, not only we're, we've known each other, we're good friends, but uh, you're, you're also a member of the Genesis 123 Foundation Advisory Board. And I neglected to mention that, but we're, we're, we're blessed to have you, blessed and grateful. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for this. This has been incredible. Everyone who, who would like to be in touch, um, please do. And let me just before uh, really wrapping up, thank you. We are grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something that a greenhouse will carry, please pop in and get it from them. Or if you're in the area but don't need anything from a greenhouse, at least go in and say hi, give them a hug and thank them for helping make this program possible. Also, special thanks to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and to build bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We love your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs that we try to do every month. Please do share this with others who will find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics related to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy. And I send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains to you and your family. Thank you and God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.